Well, first of all, I am really grateful that we are doing this series and grateful that we are having this conversation. Uh, But more than that, I am grateful that we can have uh, this conversation. All too often in churches, uh, important conversations don't take place. They get neglected. Uh, They get passed over because tragically in too many churches across America, there are too many Christians who lack the humility, the maturity, and the grace to have a conversation like the one we're going to begin today and have over the next few weeks. Uh, Humility is what recognizes that I might be wrong about my opinion. Maturity is what recognizes that someone else, they may be right about their opinion. And grace is what keeps you and what keeps me from canceling each other out and writing each other off when we have a difference of opinion. And so this is what allows us to have the conversation, humility, maturity, and grace. It's these things that keep us from losing sight of each other's humanity. Uh, Because we are all more than our affiliations. We're all more than labels or stereotypes that someone else has spoken over our lives or maybe that we have even adopted for ourselves. We are all individuals. Individuals created in the image of God, worthy of respect and dignity, regardless of what another person's position is or opinion or affiliation or label is. Uh, So I'm thankful that we have the humility and the maturity and the grace in our church to be able to have this conversation. It's what allows us to have this conversation. But this is also what allows us to answer the prayer of Jesus. Uh, Jesus prayed a prayer that only you and I can answer. And that's something to think about right there. We're always thinking about God answering our prayer. But Jesus prayed a prayer that only we could answer. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for all of his followers in every generation. And he said, Father, I pray that they will all be one. Just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that, purposeful clause, so that the world will believe you sent me. Jesus prayed that nothing would divide his followers. Jesus prayed that nothing would divide the church. And Jesus said, if the church has unity, the world is more likely to believe that God sent his son in the world to save the world. So Jesus prayed that nothing would divide us, not our secondary theologies, and certainly not our politics. And Jesus prayed for unity, knowing that in the body of Christ, in the local church, and in the big church, big C, that there would be much diversity. And it may be a surprise to you, or maybe it's not, but inside of our church, uh, we've got people who call themselves Republican. We have people who call themselves Democrats. We have people who call themselves Libertarian and Independents. We have people who think of themselves as progressive or conservative or somewhere in the middle of the road. So there's a lot of diversity in our church. And the fact that we can have this conversation is a really big deal. And the fact that we take Jesus's prayer seriously about unity is a really big deal because in a world where politics is bringing out the worst in so many people, it is my hope, it is my prayer that faith will bring out the best in us, that faith will bring out the best in the local church. And I'm hoping that it will be said of our generation what was said of the first generation of Christians, that those who have turned the world upside down, they have come to town. May it be said of our generation that we refused. We refused to leave the world the way we found it. We didn't disagree to the point that we disengaged. We didn't get cynical and we didn't get apathetic and we didn't withdraw, but rather we lived life to the full and it mattered because our lives made a difference. We leveraged everything at our disposal in order to bring the kingdom of God a little closer and consequently in doing so, making the world a little better. Thomas Merton said, a revolution is supposed to be a change that turns everything completely around. But the ideology of political revolution will never change anything except appearances. There will be violence and power will pass from one party to another. But when the smoke clears and the bodies of all the dead men are underground, the situation will be essentially the same as it was before. There will be a minority of strong men in power exploiting all the others for their own ends. There will be the same greed and cruelty and lust and ambition and avarice and hypocrisy as before. For the revolutions of men, the revolutions of men change nothing. The only influence that can really upset the injustice and iniquity of men is the power that breathes in the Christian tradition. In other words, 
The faith of the Christian, your faith, my faith, our faith, is the last great hope of earth. And what our world needs right now, what our country needs right now, what our communities need right now is to see the church be the church like never before. We are the hope of the world, and as the church, we have serious work to do. And so that's what this series is all about. And as I've reminded you many times, uh, sometimes a series is like one big sermon and that's the way this series is. So today's just introduction. If uh, something happens you don't like or something feels incomplete, then you're just gonna have to come back next week, all right? So I figured the best way to just kickstart this is just to start where we are with good old 2020. I heard somebody say just a few days ago that it was like 2020 showed up January 1, walked into the room and says, I've heard of a place and then took us all straight to hell. Uh, it's kind of how it's felt like, but you know, it, it was like all of a sudden we were confused by, you know, why in the world did 2020 turn out the way it was? We should have seen this coming, not only because the year is 2020 and we should have seen it, come on. Okay, I worked really hard for that and I was not rewarded at all. But anyway, we should have, okay, well, okay. Now I feel just silly, okay. We should have seen this coming because of nothing else back in January, I'm sure you remember this and you've never been able to forget it, but, but Prince Harry and Meghan Markle announced to the world that they were stepping down from their royal duties. And if that doesn't pretend the hell to come, I don't know what does, because it's a day that we'll never forget. I mean, the whole world just stopped for a moment and said, what are we gonna do? Uh, and then it went on from that to Iran shot missiles at US soldiers in Iraq. I don't think it had anything to do with the royal situation, but it was a serious deal nonetheless. And then in January, the House of Representatives filed articles of impeachment against the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. And that just brings us to like January 20th. And January 20th was the day that we had our first US, US corona death in Washington state. Uh, in February, there was a full-blown trial. You remember it all over the television in the US Senate where the US Senate acquitted our president, Donald J. Trump, of the articles of impeachment, impeachment that were filed against him by the House of Representatives. Then we come to March and that was the first time that the WHO, the World Health Organization, announced that Corona was indeed a pandemic. Simultaneous to that, here in America, we were already feeling the pain and the sting of this newly classified pandemic. Uh, the markets crashed, one of the single largest drops in the US markets in history. And then subsequent to that, uh, we have seen over 209,000 people tragically lose their lives. So we, we went through all of that in March and, and we sat back and, and we watched, uh, many of us, we were paying attention, we watched our country come together. And what seemed like this willingness to do whatever it took to save lives in the shadows of a virus that we had more questions than answers concerning. Uh, it was something to watch. Americans of all stripes and all colors, they, they rallied behind the sick. They rallied behind healthcare workers and, and first responders and those on the front line. Communities, uh, they, they bound themselves together and, and they rallied behind small business owners who had to shut the doors in order to save lives, even sacrificing their own financial well-being. Uh, we turned on the news and we saw semis parked outside of New York City hospitals where those who were dying with coronavirus uh, were being stored because people were dying so fast to keep up with the demand and, and everybody was talking about it and, and most Christians were praying about it and everywhere you turned, the news was all about the pandemic. And for a moment, for, for a brief moment, it felt like we are all in this together. We're, we're all in this together. We're in this with each other and we are in this for each other. But then something happened and it happened too fast and, and, and it happened so fast that many of us, we really weren't paying attention when it started happening, but many of us got swept up in the current of the pandemic that all of a sudden became political. And it no longer felt like we were in this together. It no longer felt like we were in this with each other, for each other. All of a sudden we woke up one day and it felt like we were in this against each other. Uh, for some people, the pandemic was about saving lives. And for some people, they were saying that everything going on was about losing freedom. Uh, for some, it was a matter to take seriously. And for others, it was no big deal and maybe even a hoax. 
Uh, for some, it was an opportunity to save lives by masks, and for some, it was an opportunity to lose freedom by wearing a mask. And so the rhetoric became toxic, and lines were drawn, and sides were chosen, and all of a sudden, we're in it against each other. And so this is the pandemic that became political. On top of that came racial unrest in May. And all of a sudden we were reminded of and confronted all over again, once again, as we are so very often about the racial hurt and the racial divide and the pain that still exists in this country. And as a result of events that took place, there were peaceful protests of those seeking justice for acts of injustice. I've got friends who participated in those peaceful protests. I know some of you participated in some peaceful protests. Uh, but at the very same time, there were unjustifiable acts of rioting and violence on the city streets of our nation, some of which happening right here in our state in Kentucky. And once again, the rhetoric became toxic, the lines were drawn and sides were chosen. And you were either here or you were either there and there was nowhere to be in between. Then came natural disasters in 2020. And I will always remind us, let us not forget about the killer hornets that's somewhere out there still that people are being oddly silent about. But there were natural disasters, the West Coast dealing with fire and the Gulf Coast dealing with a couple of different hurricanes and tropical storms. It became political immediately. For some, this was a matter of man-made climate change and we are partially responsible for the deaths of those who were caught by this storm. And then for others, uh, man-made climate change doesn't exist. This is irresponsible. This is just an agenda to rule the world and to rob of freedom. Uh, this is the normal course of things. Uh, this has always happened. It will always happen. And so again, the lines were drawn, sides were chosen, and the rhetoric became extremely toxic. There was nowhere to be in the middle. It seemingly pushed us on one side of the other. Then we come to the last two weeks and Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, she passes away. A week later, Amy Comey Barrett is nominated by our president to fill her vacancy. Uh, Tuesday night, uh, most of us watched the first of the presidential uh, debates in this election series. It's very gentlemanly ordered and uh, everybody <laughs> followed the rules. And uh, so, you know, we all watched that take place and then uh, if that wasn't unnerving enough, when 70% of Americans said we watched, but we were kind of annoyed afterward, uh, three days later, we found out that the commander in chief and the leader of the free world, our president, that he had contracted uh, COVID-19. And then by the end of the day of Friday, uh, we all hear the news that he is being lifted by helicopter and he's taken to Walter Reed uh, Military Hospital. All of which brings us to today, 30 days from the election, of which, President Trump and Joe Biden and Bill O'Reilly and Bernie Sanders all agree on something. They've all called this particular presidential election the most important election of our lifetimes. Is it? Maybe, maybe not. It's relative to time and place and the little speck of history that we find ourselves in. But politics, I will remind all of us, always speaks in the superlative. It's always the biggest and the best and the worst. And so we don't really know where this is all gonna shake down, but the one thing that's not debatable and, and really why I've wanted to talk about this really since the beginning of the year is the one thing that's not debatable is we live in a culture where people are polarized by politics, Christian people and non-Christian people. Now, one thing about politics, and I will use it in a pejorative term, and I know that not all politics are bad, and certainly when I talk about politics, I'm not necessarily speaking of politicians, so let that be clear. So I'm just gonna speak about the underbelly of politics that we're mostly confronted with day in and day out. Politics has the, divide, has the power to divide families, to divide friends, to divide communities, to divide a nation, uh, to divide a world, and, and what I'm most concerned about, it has the potential and what we're seeing is in dividing the body of Christ, dividing the local church. Now, to give you a little snapshot, because again, this is just the introduction to where we're going. The founding fathers were very concerned about partisan politics. Uh, the founding fathers, James Madison, who is a big deal, if you don't know anything about how we got started as America, James Madison, 
He saw partisan politics as the fruit of freedom, but he also at the same time recognized that it could be a threat to freedom and to this republic. So it is part of the paradox that a democracy requires partisanship, but at the same time, an unchecked partisanship can be a threat to the republic. George Washington, our first president in the 1700s, in his farewell speech as president of the United States, he said this, he said, the common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party or partisan politics, the spirit of party are sufficient to make it the interest and the duty of a wise people to discourage and restrain it. In other words, he already recognized the factiousness of politics and that if we don't pay attention and we don't do all that we can to disarm that, it could in the end work against us. In a recent USA Today editorial article, uh, in our modern day context, this is what the authors wrote. Democrats and Republicans used to agree on policy issues. That's the normal useful tension that drives democracy. Today, each side fears the other will destroy the nation if they achieve power. Partisanship becomes equated with patriotism and destroying the other side becomes the ultimate goal. This is how democracies fall apart because when victory is what matters most, our methods no longer matter as much. When victory at all costs, when victory no matter what is what matters most, how we win victories and how we behave and how we conduct ourselves begins to matter less. So when it comes to politics, uh, it's obvious that emotions and sentiments run deep. Assumptions, presuppositions abound, misrepresentations, mischaracterizations are common by both sides and by even the people in the middle. Uh, politics, uh, they leverage and peddle in fear. That's how, that's how politics has to work because that's what gets people to write checks to campaigns and that's what gets out the vote. So politics has to peddle in fear in order to have power and influence over people. This is the way it works. This is as old as it gets in the world. Matter of fact, it was Ronald Reagan, a conservative in the 1980s who said uh, that uh, politics, uh, the longer he's in it, which he called the second oldest profession in the world. He said, the longer I'm in it, I begin to re realize that it resembles the oldest profession in the world. A Democrat in the 1960s, John F. Kennedy said that every mother wants their son to be president one day, but they just don't want them to become a politician in the process. Uh, politics politics in speci in specifically requires to, to fear something. There always has to be someone who wants to take away your freedom, someone who wants to take away your benefits, someone who wants to take your money, someone who wants to take your health care. There's always a person who has to be xenophobic, homophobic, racist, sexist, un-American, who is against you, your values, your faith, that if elected will bring about the end of the world. There always has to be that caricature in politics. That's the way it is. That's the way it's always been. It's the way it always will be. And so therefore we're left to choose sides Republican or Democrat, conservative or uh, progressive. Uh, we have to decide blue lives matters versus black lives matter, strong borders versus open borders, uh, universal healthcare versus uh, private insurance. We have to be somewhere on social security. We have to be somewhere on taxes. We have to be somewhere on education. We have to be somewhere on poverty. We have to be somewhere on urbanization and globalization. And it just goes on and on and on that we have to choose sides. That's the way politics works. Now, I say that to remind us that even though everything is political, politics aren't everything. Everything is political, but politics aren't everything, especially for those of us who follow Jesus. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you have pronounced and declared your allegiance to your Savior and Lord who died for your sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And when you follow Jesus, you said that your allegiance to him would transcend all other allegiances. Your allegiance to family, your allegiance to friends, your allegiance to country, your allegiance to party, your allegiance to you. That when we follow Jesus, we give up ownership of our lives and we pledge allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone above all other things. Because Jesus showed up and he said, I'm king. And if you follow me, you're a citizen of my kingdom. And in my kingdom, we do not play by the rules of the kingdoms of this world. 
In my kingdom, we operate by a different law, a different ethic. In my kingdom, when you follow me, you're called to prefer others over yourself, which gives us something to give, you know, have pause about when we go vote. Are we voting for us or are we voting for other people? And what's motivating my vote when I vote, me or other people? Because following Jesus is supposed to be about other people, but voting is supposed to be all about me. So what do I do about that? Uh, Jesus said, when you follow me, you're called to bless and pray for your enemies. You're called to forgive and not seek retribution. You're called to show grace and not harbor bitterness. Uh, following me, Jesus would say, in my kingdom, we, we concern ourselves more with responsibility than we do rights. Well, that just doesn't even sound American. Jesus would say, I know, what are you gonna do about that? Uh, well, I, I don't know, what am I supposed to do about that? So when we get involved and we're supposed to be involved and when we get engaged and we're supposed to be engaged within the kingdoms of this world, what do we do when the kingdoms of this world puts us at odds with the kingdom of God? or specific, and this is where it might get uncomfortable. What do we do when following Jesus puts us at odds with our political party? Because if following Jesus doesn't put me at odds with my political party, I either don't know everything I need to know about my political party, or I don't know everything I need to know about Jesus. If Jesus is in lockstep with your party, you may not understand Jesus that much because no political party has the market on Jesus. Not one political party is in lockstep with Jesus on every issue. And if you think that, I'm very sorry to burst your bubble. You may not be back. I may not have a job. But that's where we have to start as we talk about something that's really important. So in this moment that we're in and we look around and the world's hurting and the world's divided and it's confused and people are unsettled and people are looking for hope, the question is, what is the church going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? What should we do about it? And that brings us to the man who inspired this series and its title. A man by the name of Jeremiah. A man that I think we can take our cues from, that we can learn from, that teaches us how to navigate these troubled waters that we find ourselves in. Jeremiah was the son of a prophet. Uh, he is called the weeping prophet or the compassionate prophet. He, he cried a lot. Uh, he, he lived at a time when it felt like everything was coming apart. Everybody was talking about how bad things were and how bad things were about to get. It was a time of political unrest. It was a time of amorality. Nobody really had an ethic or a code. Everybody was just doing what they wanted to do and live how they wanted to live. God was an afterthought and, and nobody was really concerned about how their faith was supposed to lead them and direct their life, beginning with their values and their decisions and their behavior. Uh, he was born during the reign of King Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years, one of the most wicked, if not the most wicked king that ever reigned in Israel. He was so wicked and his theology was so terrible that he actually uh, sacrificed his son to a pagan god by the name of Moloch. And this is just a sidebar because you can stick this in your pocket, put it in your phone, put it on your notes because we're gonna come back to this because not only what we see happening in Jeremiah's day, uh, we see a reflection of it happening in our day. Whenever there is bad theology, whenever theology goes off the rails, mark it down. Whenever your theology goes off the rails, my theology goes off the rails, a country goes off the rails with their theology and beliefs, mark it down. Women, children, the unborn, the powerless, the vulnerable, and minorities all pay the price. It's happened at every part of history Whenever theology goes off the rails, those are the people who pay the price. And that's what was happening in Jeremiah's day. It was a day when the truth had been compromised and love had become conditional because that's what happens. When someone believes something untrue, when someone believes something that's untrue, someone gets unloved. Whenever someone believes something untrue, somewhere somebody gets unloved. In Jeremiah's day, people were using God as a commodity. They had changed God into their own image. They had changed their theology to accommodate their own lifestyles and their own behavior. Much of what we see happening in our culture, where people, if they say they believe in God, they believe in a God that looks more like them than looks like God in the Bible. That they've changed God to accommodate their own lifestyle choices and their own desires and whims and wishes. So what was happening then, we see a lot of it happening in real time in our day. So when Jeremiah was 17, he had an, he had an experience with God. Uh, he had a calling. 
that showed up in his life. And when he was 17, in Jeremiah chapter one, this is, this is where the story begins. It says, the Lord gave me this message. This is Jeremiah's words. The Lord gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Because we know a God who fearfully and wonderfully creates every human being. And before any human being is born, God already knows who they are. God recognizes them as made in the image of God. I knew you before I formed you in my mother's womb, before in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as my prophet to the nations. And so this is where Jeremiah's heroic story begins because that's where every great story begins. It begins with purpose. That's where greatness always begins. A story of a great life always begins with a moment of purpose when a person, where a man, a woman, a young guy, a young girl realizes that there is a purpose spoken over their life, that they were created on purpose for a purpose. And God wanted Jeremiah to know, I have called you to live a life that makes a difference. I have called you because I want to use you. And what was true of Jeremiah, trust me, the scriptures teach is true of you and true of all of us, that you are a person of purpose, that God has a purpose for you in this generation, that God has a purpose for you in this climate that we are all a part of. God has a purpose for you in 2020. God has a purpose for you being alive. God has a purpose and God wants to use you. God wants to use you because he sees you as usable. God sees your capacity, God sees your potential, and God wants to use you to make a difference, to bring the kingdom of God a little closer, to make the world a little better. Jeremiah, I've created you in such a way that only you can do what I've called you to do, and only you can be who I've called you to be, and only you can stand where I've called you to stand. And so Jeremiah listens, and, and, and just like we're listening, and he, he kind of, he, he throws back at God and a little bit of protest, a little bit of, mm, he says, oh, sovereign Lord, I said, I can't speak for you. I'm too young. And so he, he was met, you know, he met God with an excuse. I can't do what you're asking me to do. I can't make a difference. I can't possibly uh, affect change in my world. I can't possibly drive the needle in the right direction. I'm too young. For some of you, you think I'm too old, or for some of you, you may think I don't know enough, or I've lived such a life, or you know this or that, and you've got an excuse why you think that God can't use you. But before you were born, God had a purpose for you. Before you were born, God knew every decision you would ever make. God knew everything that your life would entail. And even then he had a purpose for you that would not ever be changed, not ever be altered. No matter what has happened, no matter what is happening, no matter what will happen, your purpose from God remains unchanged. He says, so Jeremiah, you just need to do what I've told you to do because your life has purpose. So let me tell you what you're gonna do, Jeremiah. Today, I appoint you to stand up. Jeremiah, you wanna know what you can do? You can stand up because that is, that is a political phrase that we hear every election cycle, stand up. It's also a sermonic phrase that we hear used Sunday after Sunday in a lot of contexts. It's time to stand up. What in the world does that mean? Jeremiah wants you to stand up. We're gonna talk about it in this series. I appoint you to stand up. Stand up against nations and kingdoms. Some of you must uproot and tear down and destroy and overthrow. It sounds like a lot of fun. Others you must build up and plant. Listen, Jeremiah, I am calling the armies of the kingdom of the north. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians that are gonna come in and invade the city as an extension of the judgment of God. He says, I'm calling the armies of the kingdoms of the north to Jerusalem. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will pronounce judgment on my people for all their evil, for deserting me and burning incense to the other gods. Yes, listen to this. They worship idols made with their own hands. In other words, Jeremiah, you tell them that judgment's coming because they've been serving a God that they created in their own image. And when you follow and take your cues and worship a God of your own creation, that suits you, that suits your politics, that suits your treatment of others, that suits anything that you want and desire. If you create God in your own image, you are ultimately worshiping you because you are the creator of the God you worship. 
So Jeremiah, he, he knew that the task was not gonna be easy. And, and so he, he begins to do what God told him to do. He began to, to speak up and he began to speak truth. And that's not always easy to do. And it's very seldom ever welcomed. And please note this and understand this as it relates to the, the culture where we are as Americans. Nobody in our culture, let me not speak in hyperbole, hardly anybody in our culture wants to hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, including me, including you. There's some truth you don't like to hear. There's some truth that just makes you ticked off. And so you just choose not to believe it. You just choose to dismiss it. You just choose to wait an argument against it. But he spoke truth, though it wasn't easy. And God said, I'm going to tell you, be encouraged, because today I'm making you a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but Jeremiah, they will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. They're not going to be able to stop you until my purpose is complete for you and your generation. So he begins to preach. And let me, just, let me just give you a snapshot because you need to understand this in, in the introduction of this. Let me just give you a snapshot of, of what his messaging was, what his sermons were. And I'm not even gonna give you the most colorful parts. I'll save that for next week. But he, he starts preaching and he, and he looks at Israel and he says, what did your, this is what the Lord says, what did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far to me? God said, what have I done to them that they have treated me this way? They worshiped worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. Because when you worship worthless things, you begin to see yourself as worthless and you begin to see other people as worthless and you begin to treat yourself as worthless and you begin to treat other people as worthless. And pretty soon you have a life that is full of worthlessness. This is a repeating story throughout humanity. He says, your lives have become enslaved to lies. And so he calls them out of it. He says, for my people have done two great evil things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water of all. God said, I gave you water, but you didn't want it. So you went out and dug wells and you thought you'd have your own water, but it won't keep water. And that water, it's never going to do for you what my water can. So quit chasing elsewhere what you can only find in me. And so he, he's saying this and they're not liking it and it's uncomfortable. They had a real aversion to truth and he called them out on it. He says, you yourselves have killed the prophets as a lion kills its prey. Now I want you to promise this will not be true of me at the end of this series. <laughs> you yourselves have killed the prophets as a lion killed its prey. He, he said, you people, the people of God have an intolerance for the truth that rivals anybody else. You think the pagans have an intolerance for the truth? Turn your eyes to God's people and you'll see also a people who have an intolerance for the truth. Though they say they love the truth and champion the truth and believe in the truth, we find amongst God's people an intolerance of the truth. Is it still like that today? Well, you betcha, because Paul told us it would be. First Timothy chapter three, second Timothy chapter three, second Timothy chapter four, that in the latter days, there will be a people who what? They will not handle the truth. You can't handle that truth, you know? You didn't know that Jack was talking about us. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about and that was the weirdest moment for you and I'm, I'm very sorry. <laughs> Google it later. He says in the last days, the generations after Jesus, he says people are just gonna want to hear what sounds like truth to them. We always read that verse to think that he's talking about somebody else. Right, don't we always apply that verse to them? The liberals? Those Christians who don't believe what we believe, of course we do. But what, just what, just have the humility to wonder if he might be talking to us from time to time. That at some point we have gotten intolerant to truth. And so he says, you won't listen to the truth. Why won't they listen to the truth? And he goes on, he says, oh, my people, listen to the words of the Lord. Have I been like a desert to Israel? Have I been like a land of darkness to them? Why then do people say, at last we are free from God? We do not need him anymore. We have God exactly the way we want him that allows us to behave the way we want, say what we want to say, be angry, seek revenge, seek anything that we want just because we've got God exactly where we want him. We've got our corner of our own version of truth. 
He, he looks at the country and he says, you've lost the consciousness of God because you've changed who God is. And when a nation or a people loses a consciousness of God, they lose truth, they lose love, they lose justice, they lose compassion, they lose mercy, they lose grace. And so Jeremiah, he goes on in chapter seven and he keeps on preaching. He says, you've exploited each other. Injustice fills the streets. So stop exploiting the poor, stop exploiting the vulnerable. The idols are not only harming you, but they're causing you to hurt other people around you. He said, the families, they've given themselves over to idolatry and they're being destroyed. And the people can't see how it's hurting them and hurting everybody else. He says, you're seeking after a God you've created and in the end, you're not gonna get what you want. What you get in the end is gonna be the thing that you never wanted to begin with. So we find Jeremiah crying his eyes out, compassionate, brokenhearted. He is the weeping prophet and not the angry prophet. And he's angry a little bit later on. His tears give way to cynicism and his tears give way to frustration. And his soft heartedness gives way to a bit of hard heartedness. And he has an argument with God. You can read about it in chapter 11. He's complaining about the way other people behave. And then in chapter 12, he, he just, he continues on. And in chapter 12, he says, Lord, you have always, always, you always give me justice when I bring a case before you. So let me bring you this complaint, God. Yeah, I'm still complaining. I was complaining in chapter 11. I'm still complaining now. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are evil people so happy? Look at them sinning. Look at them. Sinners, happy. Look at us godly people. Miserable. Isn't that what every teenager thinks? Look at all those sinners, the time of their life. Look at all these church people. And that's what he's saying. He said, God, why are all these people who are, why are they so happy? And then he blames God. He says, you have planted them. This is your fault, God. <laughs> they have taken root and prospered. Your name's on their lips, but their, their hearts are far from you. But as for me, Lord, you know my heart. You see me and test my thoughts. So he feels a little self-righteous right now. This is Jeremiah, he's not, he's human. He's not perfect. And then, and then he just, he, he, so he says, God, drag these people like sheep to be butchered into the streets. Set them aside to be slaughtered. Now, let me be very clear about something. This is not the goal. This, this is not Jeremiah in a good place. He's losing his own humanity. And let me tell you this. When we lose our own humanity, we begin to be able to not see other people's humanity any longer. When you begin to lose your humanity and it gives itself over to primal emotion, you begin to lose your ability to see the humanity in other people. We saw this over the weekend with President Trump being flown to the medical hospital and people wishing death and people wishing suffering. And I mean, that's where, we, that's where we've gotten to in, in the climate and the culture that we're in. We, we've lost the ability to see people's humanity. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is just a figure. She's not a human being for some people. She's just the figure and the embodiment of evil. She's not a human being with heart and lungs and a family who's as human as you are on any day of your life. She's not a person with a story. For some people, they look at Mitch McConnell and he's the devil in the flesh. He's, he's stopped being human. He could not possibly be a human being. He, he's something worse than human. That's where we are. We've lost our ability to see each other as representatives and reflections of the image of God. You ever been there? You ever seen a problem, a situation, you got so frustrated with it, you got so angry about it, you just, you thought to yourself on the news and you just said, we ought to just kill them all. Just, just start shooting. Just drop the bombs. Let the chips fall, of course. Because we give ourselves over to these less than human, less than the heart of our heavenly father moments. And that's where Jeremiah's at. So he's having a very human moment. He said, how long must this land mourn? Even the grass and the fields have withered. The wild animals and the birds have disappeared because of the evil in the land. He thinks he's losing his country. He thinks he's losing everything that's dear to him. And then God speaks these words, don't miss it. Jeremiah, if racing against mere men makes you tired, how will you race against the horses? 
If you stumble and fall on open ground, what will you do in the thickets near the Jordan? Jeremiah, if, if just what's going on now causes you to stumble and tire, how are you gonna run with the horses in the jungle? When this thing gets worse and when it escalates and when the stakes get higher, what are you gonna do then? How are you gonna run with horses when the battle intensifies? Because you're just not fighting against flesh and blood, you're fighting against spiritual powers and principalities and wickedness in high places. You're not fighting a battle against things and people you can see, you're in the middle of a battle that you can't see. So how in the world are you gonna run against horses when real people tire you out? I don't know. He says, even your brothers and your members of your own family are gonna turn against you. They are turning against you. They plot and raise complaints against you. In other words, Jeremiah, who's gonna be your greatest allegiance? Who's it gonna be? Jeremiah, if you get tired of people, how are you gonna run with horses? And when you read the rest of Jeremiah's life, he ran with the horses. Even in the most violent upside down times in his nation's history, his first allegiance beyond family, beyond tribe, was to God. Jeremiah didn't run away from the mess, he ran towards the mess. He involved himself and engaged in the process. That's what he did. And so this is, this is where I leave it with you today. Jeremiah was willing to stand. He spoke truth to his generation. Pastor, do you believe the Bible? I absolutely believe the Bible. I believe that the scriptures are inspired. I believe they're infallible. Do we have a responsibility to speak truth? Yes, we do. Do we have a responsibility to speak truth to a culture and a generation that desperately needs truth? Yes, but we do not have the right to speak truth and lose our humanity along the way and lose our ability to see the humanity of those we're speaking truth to. We do not have the right to speak truth and lose our compassion. We do not have the right to speak truth and lose grace. We do not have the right to speak truth and hate those that we speak truth to. He spoke uncompromised truth with the tone of unconditional love. And then Jeremiah was willing to stand alone. He could have been a priest like his father that was one of the tribes of his day. He could have been a wise man because that was a whole tribe in his day. People who had basically turned a theology into a seeker, sensitive, whatever you want God to be, God can be that. And so people went to wise men to get advice for how to live their life. He could have been a professional prophet because there were those in those days. But he decided that he wasn't gonna be a priest and he wasn't gonna be a professional prophet and he was not gonna be a wise man. He was not gonna dive into the tribes that changed theology so that it would never upset anybody's way of life. And in a day where tribalism reigned supreme, just like ours, he decided that he was not going to pledge his allegiance to his tribe, not to the priests, not to the prophets, and not to the wise men. Because here's what we learn: Running with horses means that at times and places, you may not and I may not have a tribe to call our own. People love tribes. There's safety in tribes. There's echoes in tribes. There's not conversations in tribes, they're just echoes. You don't have to think when you're in the tribe because the tribe has already thought for you. The tribe has already told you how you think about everything and where you stand on everything. We find our identity in the tribe. We find our worth in the tribe. Tribalism, I dare you to take a look at it in our nation. Tribalism has an innate intolerance for any truth that isn't the tribe's truth. If it's not the truth that's been adopted by the tribe, they have an intolerance of truth. And if you don't walk the line with the tribe, and if you don't accept as a package deal the ethics and the truth of the tribe, guess what? The tribe will have no place for you. You will get canceled and you will get written off because that is the nature of tribalism. But Jeremiah, he was willing to stand outside the tribe. He was willing to stand alone so that he could speak to all of them. And you know what? They wanted to kill him for it. Because if you're not for the tribe, you're against the tribe. 
If you don't agree with me on immigration, if you don't agree with me on taxes, if you don't agree with me on Trump, on Biden, if you don't agree with me about Supreme Court, if you don't agree with me on this or that, then I'm done with you. I'm done with you. Those one, two, three things that we disagree with is more important than all the other things that we agree with and agree on. That's tribalism. That's what was going on in Jeremiah's day and he was willing to stand alone. The question is, will we? Because it is easier to stand with the tribe than it is to stand alone against it. Jesus showed up and went into Jerusalem. And lots of people said, there he is, Messiah, hell Messiah, son of God. But this is what Jesus said about the fear of the tribe. He said many people did believe in him. However, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. He said there were some who wanted to follow Jesus, but they were afraid of what the tribe would say. They were afraid that the tribe would kick them out, that the tribe would have no place for them. And that's what we see in our culture, on social media, on television, people vilifying one another, demonizing one another, not because we believe it's a rhetoric that persuades, but because we pay our dues publicly to the tribe. Let everybody know who I'm with, let everybody know where I stand, and it does not matter how I treat you in the process as long as you know what tribe I'm with. There's tribalism in politics and there's tribalism in the church. We can't hang out with them because they baptize different. We can't, bat, we can't hang out with them because they take communion different. We can't hang out with them because their style of music is different. The size of their church is different. We can't. To follow Jesus may mean at times there's no place for us in the tribe. That's what it means. It's uncomfortable. Let me take it just a little bit further. The only way we can truly speak to the hypocrisy of the tribalism that exists in our culture is from outside the tribe. To speak to one tribe who says, all you talk about is saving life before it's born, but you never talk about inner cities and poverty among children who are already born. You talk about the life of the unborn, but you don't talk about the child at the border and the conditions that they may be having to deal with. For some in a tribe, all they talk about is the racial inequality inside the city, but they're as silent as crickets when it comes to life before birth. To talk about the hypocrisy of, hey, we're against abortion, but we don't have anything that we're really passionate about, about eliminating poverty for people. Even though that the majority of abortions that take place in our country happen with women of minorities who are below the poverty line. Every tribe has hypocrisy. Every tribe has boxes they cannot check, and if not, the church who will speak up, who will? Adrian Rogers, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's more conservative than anybody here, I promise, anybody who's watching. He said, I, we dare not identify the Christian faith with the Democratic or the Republican Party. We need to be free to tell both parties to repent when we need to. Jesus showed up in a hyper-political world and he refused to take sides. Didn't mean he didn't have opinions and it didn't mean he didn't have a position and it didn't mean he didn't have convictions, but Jesus decided to side with himself. And Jesus looked at people and said, if you're gonna follow me, your allegiance to me is more than your mom and your dad, your sons and your daughters. If you're gonna put your hand to the plow and set your eyes on me, if you take your cues from anything else by looking behind, you're not worthy of me. Jesus said, if you follow me, I am your greatest allegiance. Jesus was political. He used terms like king and kingdom, overtly political. But Jesus is not political. Christianity is not political. Jesus is and of himself apolitic, Jesus is for Jesus followers in and of himself, our politic. Because he gives us an interpretation of the past, a diagnosis of the present and a vision for the future. And that's what politics seeks to do. Politics seeks to give us an interpretation of the past. It seeks to diagnose the present and give us a vision for the future. And Jesus is our politic. 
The scriptures are our politic. It gives us an interpretation of where we come from. It gives us an explanation of what it means to be human. And when you begin to be human and when you cease to be human, it is Jesus and the scriptures that offer us an interpretation of how do we live together in peace and justice? How do we protect the vulnerable and the poor and the exploited? It is Jesus who offers us a view and understanding of what family looks like, of how we're to deal with money, how we're to treat enemies, how we're to deal with violence, and how to bring about human flourishing in every generation. It is Jesus, our politic, Christianity, our politic, that says, this is how you see and understand the world. Politics ask, what do I stand for? Jesus followers we're gonna see asks, who do I stand with? And when we stand with Jesus, we stand with those Jesus died for. We stand with the unloved and we stand with the unwanted. We stand with the unborn, we stand with the born, we stand with the suffering. We stand with women, we stand with children, we stand with minorities, we stand with the majority, we stand with those who have the heavy hand of economic injustice over them. We speak to those who feel socially left out. We stand with those who are the object of racism. We stand with orphans and with widows. We stand with the powerless. We stand with the hurting. We stand with the poor. We stand with the addicted. We stand with the struggling and with the self-sabotaging. We stand with everybody Jesus stands with and Jesus stands with them all because Jesus died for them all. That's where we stand. And if what we stand for keeps us from who we are supposed to stand with, we have ceased to stand where Jesus stands. So we need to stand. We need to stand with Jesus. And when doing so, we stand with everyone he stands with. And as we go further, we're gonna unpack the tension in that, the lack of clarity in that, and the uncomfort of that. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, only you can make our hearts receptive to truth. My heart, our hearts. Maybe it was uncomfortable, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. But Holy Spirit, would you just speak to us what we need to hear and God if I said something I didn't need to say or I said something that was wrong I'm sorry if I said something the way it didn't need to be said I'm sorry but I pray that I won't get in the way of us hearing truth I pray this moment won't get in the way of us hearing truth because it's the only thing that will set us free may we make up our mind today that more than family more than friends more than tribe more than party more than anything else we will stand with you. And in doing so, stand for those and with those that you gave your life for. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,